0: We are in week three of a series called Get Real. And the whole purpose of this series is for God to show us the masks that we wear. As we pretend to be people that we're not, as we pretend to be happy or in control when we're not, we're projecting a certain image, a certain persona, and God wants to get real with us. Because the degree to which you and I get real and take the masks off, as painful as it may be at times, is a degree to which we can experience genuine relationship with God. And genuine relationship with people. And I even believe genuine relationship with ourselves. So speaking of masks, there's been a rise over the last few years of these comic book based movies, superhero movies, especially the Marvel and DC franchises. And the biggest, most recent one was Avengers Infinity War. And I know so many of your hearts were broken by going to watch that movie. Um, The interesting thing about this movie, it is the fastest movie to get a billion dollars. It took 11 days to make a billion dollars at the global box office. Now, some of you, this is a real hobby, making sure that you watch all these Marvel and DC movies. Uh, Bianca and I watched them from time to time, and we thought, hey, let's go watch um, this movie, Avengers Infinity War. And we were told, no, you you can't just go watch that. You've got to watch this, and then you've got to go watch this one, and then you've got to watch that one. And only then can you go, and I'm thinking, what clever franchising. I mean, these guys are so clever the way they put this together. But now, without getting overly philosophical, I ask myself, what is it about a superhero movie that makes it a guaranteed box office hit? I mean, uh, uh, why do we go watch these movies? Is it because of their superpowers and there's something in us that wishes we could do that? Or is it because it's a bunch of good-looking guys and girls running around in spandex? Why do we go watch these movies? And maybe that's part of it, but I believe the real part of it is we actually do identify with these characters. Every single one of these mask-wearing characters is a real person. And if you know something, and I only know very little about these people, every single one of them come from a damaged and dark past. And yet, on one hand, they're trying to save the world, and they've got this persona that is so powerful and superhuman, and yet we know not too far beneath the surface is this past and these hurts. I mean, probably my favorite mask character is, is Batman. And uh, I mean, he witnessed his parents get murdered. And, and, and what we know about Batman is he carries his guilt as he believes he is responsible for that. And so much of what he's projecting is coming from this place of guilt and hurt. And I, as we watch these characters try and deal with life and love, with their superhuman powers and their brokenness, I think that's where we connect with them because we are that. On one hand, yes, we want to change the world and we want to put our best foot forward, man, and we want to make a difference in this world, but not too far beneath the surface is our past and our hurts and our shame and our regrets. And we're also just trying to do life and love and faith in the middle of all of it. So today we're gonna look at the mask of our pasts particularly the mask of shame where we land up living in this reality formed by our shame rather than by who we are in Jesus and God wants to meet with us and intersect with our past here this morning and I just want to let you know on the front end this may be a painful morning for you but I pray it will be a healing morning for you as God intersects with your life The interesting thing about the Bible is that, and if you do have your Bibles here, turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to be hanging out there together just now. John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible here, it will be on the screen behind me. But if we look through the Scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament, we see so many characters with exactly the same story. We see characters with broken pasts. We see characters full of shame full of regrets and then God intersects with their lives and God gets real with them and they are set free for a new and a different journey of hope in Jesus. Now, one of the particular characters comes from John chapter four. It's a story maybe some of you have heard before, but we're gonna just read through some of these verses and see what we can learn here. John four verses three onwards. When the Lord learns of this, he left Judea, which is in the south and went back once more to Galilee, which is in the north. And I'll explain why I'm pointing that out to you. Now he had to go through Samaria, which is in the middle. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well, this is hundreds of years before, was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is midday. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food and no doubt I would have been with them. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, before I read on, what we need to understand here is Jesus is crossing a whole lot of boundaries in order to set someone free on this day. He knows she's got a past and he wants to bring life into her presence and he crosses a whole lot of cultural and geographic boundaries in order to do this. I already mentioned he was in Judea, Galilee was in the north, that's where he was heading. Most Jews went around Samaria which is in the middle because Jews hated Samaritans. Jews looked down at Samaritans, saw them as half-breeds. They had this kind of mixed stock of Gentile and Jewish blood. Plus the Jews believed that they had perverted their scriptures and their faith. And Jews hated Samaritans. So Jews going from Judea to Galilee would go around Samaria. And Jesus crosses a geographic border to intersect with this woman's past and her shame. The other thing that is happening here, Jesus is a man and is meeting publicly alone with a woman, which was not something that happened. First century readers would have been appalled by this. In addition, it's a a Jewish man meeting with a Samaritan woman, a rabbi meeting with this woman. The other thing that's going to come out of the story, we haven't quite got there yet, but there are clues here already, is this woman's got a reputation. And the clue that we've already seen here is that she's getting water in the middle of the day. Now guys, this is the Middle East. The middle of the day is the worst time to get water. So why on earth would she be alone getting water in the middle of the day? You see all the other women, they gathered around in the mornings when it was cool and then they would go and take the water and deal with all the household chores during the course of the day under shade. The reason why she was doing this is because she was a moral outcast and we're gonna find out exactly why just now. So Jesus is crossing these borders by speaking to this immoral woman, this outcast, a woman in the middle of the day, a Samaritan, and she's completely dumbfounded. Why is this man doing this? Well, let's continue reading. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's not quite getting where he's going yet. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water pointing to the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him A spring of living water welling up to eternal life. This is the act that Jesus is wanting to do in her. He's wanting to give her living water that gives her life and hope and freedom. But notice he doesn't move straight from here to kind of this deposit of living water. He's needing to intersect with her past and shame. He's needing to prepare her for the living water she's about to receive. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep on coming here to draw water. And he told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. And he's about to point out why she is this moral and social outcast. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, this woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. I think one of the reasons why we don't want to get real with anyone or even with God with our shame is because we believe that man, if I to be exposed with my shame and my sins, man, if God was there, I mean, imagine right there and you're in a room with Jesus and your shame comes out. I think so many of us believe Jesus is going to go, why are you such an idiot? And He's just going to judge us and He's just going to condemn us. And, and maybe we've received it from other people. So man, this is a closely guarded place, shame, And I want you to notice that, that is not what Jesus does. He goes in so gently. And He takes the mask off. And I'm sure at that point she was feeling so vulnerable. I'm sure that is a, not, a, not a thought that she loved thinking about. I'm sure that is a thought that she didn't like talking about. And I'm sure that is a thought that other people that heaped shame upon her for. And at that point, Jesus shows us such gentleness and so much love, and so much grace. And that is how God wants to deal with us today. And Jesus wants to take us to the point of bringing our shame into the light, not to condemn you but to prepare you for streams of living water so that you can experience life and freedom and move beyond some of what is holding back in your life because all of us are this woman. Now, if you think about your past and your shame, for some of you, man, it's right here. You don't need to think too hard and you know what you're carrying around with you. For some of us, it is not that obvious, but I've become convinced we are all this woman. I've become convinced that whether we are conscious of it or not, we are carrying around shame. We are being defined and we are living out of this place of shame. There's an author, Peter Skizzero. He's a pastor and a great author. And he writes a lot about this kind of stuff. And he calls this, this shameful past that informs our presence, he calls it our shadow. He says, everyone has a shadow. So what is it? Your shadow is the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts that while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. Notice, we're not aware of it. Shaping how you do marriage, shaping how you do business, shaping how you do faith, shaping how you respond to life and emotions. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. He came to realize, man, if I want to live differently, if I want to do life differently and, and marriage differently and leadership differently and church differently, I need to allow God to, into this area, into the shadow of my shame because that is probably the single biggest healing work that he can do in order to change my character and who I am. The problem is we cannot change what we are unaware of. So look at what Jesus does with this woman. He goes straight to her place of shame. So how can we, if we're saying, listen, if I need to be made aware of this so that I can allow God to work in this area of my life, how can we participate with Jesus in this? I'm gonna have on the screen behind me a number of indicators that might lead you towards the place where your shame is. And again, let me say, this is not for you to feel condemned. This is to bring it into the presence of Jesus and allow Him to do a work with you. But the first shame indicates is the place of anger. Now again, not everyone who gets angry is because of shame. But so often, you know, sometimes you, you, you know, in your family, you're in your workplace, you're in your friendship circles, you just know with so-and-so, that's just a no-go zone. Just don't go there because they'll blow it. And if that's you, what is that area? What is that no-go zone? And your respond, your response is anger. And number two, Self-loathing and self-talk. Golfers are so familiar with this. Stephen, you're such an idiot, right? The problem is when we say that to ourselves and we believe it. Stephen, you are an idiot. We have this self-talk and the self-loathing and we believe those words. Number three, arrogance and judgments. See, often those who are arrogant and judgmental and maybe they're largely unconscious of this, you see, it's so much better if I can make you feel bad and if I can point out how everybody else is wrong because somehow that soothes me because I believe I am wrong, but I can't deal with that. So I'd rather point out everybody else's faults. Number four, maybe you take the blame for everything or you take the blame for nothing. See, if you believe that you are fundamentally the problem, a problem, Maybe you are the person who just, this is something I used to deal with. Whenever something went wrong, I believe somehow I'm the problem. Or in the case of the previous point, you're always shifting the blame because man, we can't even go there. Number five, withdrawal. What causes you to withdraw? Withdraw from God, withdraw from people. So much easier for me to just reject myself on behalf of you before you reject me. Number six, addiction. And by addiction, we can talk about chemical and drug addiction and alcohol addiction or porn addiction. We can talk about spending addiction. We can talk about Facebook addiction, any addictive behaviors. And very often, the addictive behavior comes from a place of shame, but then the addictive behavior becomes a secondary source of shame. And then the strange thing about addiction is, man, my behavior makes me feel shameful, but then my behavior makes me feel better for a while, and then I feel shameful again, and then it makes me feel better for a while, and then I feel shameful again, and that is the addiction cycle. Number seven, fear of being exposed. Man, that one thing that you are afraid of, if anyone knew about this, what is that? That's a good indicator that you're still carrying around shame and God hasn't dealt with you there. Number eight, I can't forgive myself. I've heard people say, you know, my wife's forgiven me, or my husband's forgiven me, um, uh, you know, God's forgiven me. I just can't forgive myself. And I believe that is a powerful indicator that the, you are carrying around shame. And maybe God wants to deal with you in that place this morning. Because as a result of these things, we feel disqualified, we feel like a failure, we feel unclean, we feel like an outcast, we feel weak, we feel inferior and maybe some of you have even for these reasons considered taking your life. We use this word so lightly, shame. But this word is so profound. Listen how an author, he wrote a book called Shame Interrupted, Edward Welch. This is how he defines shame. Shame is the deep sense, the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. See, shame is the dialogue that happens inside of us where I don't say I made a mistake, I say I am a mistake. Where we don't say I messed up, no, I am a mess up. I am inadequate. I am invaluable as a result of these things in my life. And of course, there's such a painful space to live in. Who wants to dwell in that? So we put on these masks. We want to protect ourselves. And so we project what we think people want us to be, what we think God wants us to be, and we live in these masks. And today, God wants to take those masks off to bring living water to us. Now, what happens next in this story is so interesting. Because man oh man, this is again, it's us every single time. Jesus has just brought her shame to the surface in a very gentle way, but it's there. Notice what she does in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, if you're following the logic, you're like, what does that have to do with anything? We're talking about your past, the living water. Now you bring up this theological question see what she's doing she's deflecting jesus i don't want to go there you know and i think some of us do i know i do when i want to deflect, i go to theological debates and we're going to debate can we do this can't we do this is russia the antichrist and when's jesus coming back and what about these blood moons and all that And, and you know we can debate those things but i know for me sometimes it's a way of deflecting a way of feeling christian while not dealing with what god wants to deal with me For some of us, it's not that. For some of us, it's humor. And again, not all funny guys are carrying around shame. But sometimes my humor is a way of deflecting people's attention and my attention away from what's really going on. Some of us, we just get busy. We pile ourselves into work or we get busy with our hobbies because man, we can't be alone for five seconds before this comes up inside of me. Sometimes it's just I surround myself with people because man, if if I'm with people, then I don't have to come face to face with what God is trying to bring my attention to. And so we deflect. And this, by the way, is the oldest trick in the book. And by the book, I mean the Bible. If we had to go right back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, I love the description of Adam and Eve in chapter two. It says this, this is before they sinned. They were naked and without shame. Just think about that. Naked, fully exposed to God, to the other, to self. Fully vulnerable, fully known. No body shame, no psychological shame, no daddy issues, no kind of personal, you know, baggage that we're carrying around. Just fully known, fully vulnerable, fully exposed, and there's no shame. Yet what happens is they sin. What is the first thing they felt? Shame. How do we know that? Well, they were naked without shame then what did they do? We're naked. Oh, now we need to cover up. Now I'm proposing this morning we remain covered up in that sense of the word. (laughs) But They covered themselves up and then they hid. And we have been doing that ever since. And it is our response to shame. I don't like how I feel when I look at my shame. So I'm going to try and cover myself up. And these are these masks we're talking about. And then I'm going to hide. And I'm going to hide from God. And I'm going to hide from others. I'm convinced that in many cases, if not most cases, one of the reasons that people draw away from church, that people draw away from community, people draw away from accountability, Christian friends that we get real with, is because of this. Is undealt with shame and I hide. And I hide and I cover. We hope our issues will go away, but the thing is, God doesn't let us do that. Think about it. If our sin causes shame, which causes me to believe that I am unlovable and invaluable and all these inferior things we spoke about, which causes me to hide and cover up, which invariably leads to more sin, which causes shame, which causes me to hide and cover up, which causes more sin, which leads to more shame, more hiding and more covering. What is the most loving thing that Jesus can do in your life today? He can reach in to that deepest point of shame, And bring it into the light. Breaking through all that hiding, all those masks, all that covering and all that pretending. Again, not to condemn you. But so that you can be prepared for this living water in your life. So I want to suggest to you this morning, if you're taking notes, that one of the things you do is to let Jesus speak the truth to you about your shame. I love this woman's response. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Remember, she was this moral and social outcast, ashamed of her background. Probably in the town, those guys were still there, right? She goes back from this encounter with Jesus. She runs into the town, completely forgetting her shame, completely forgetting her past, completely forgetting she might run into one of these dudes and just tells, hey, there's this guy here. Here's what he knows about me. I believe he's the Messiah. Come and see. Everyone comes to see and everyone gets saved. I mean, what freedom. What boldness. What new life and confidence and living water was coming out of her at that moment? I know what I'm about to say, I say regularly, I know on certain issues, I sound like a broken record. And on this next issue, I will remain to be a broken record because I don't believe If God is speaking to you and if God is speaking to us as a church, that Sunday is this thing that comes and goes. We tick the box and carry on with real life. If God is speaking, this is why we believe in life groups, where we get to talk and be held accountable and massage these things into our lives. Have people supporting us. And I believe we need to be going home and saying, God, what are you saying to me? The last series, we encourage you guys to get hold of a journal. Some of you do it in your phones and your iPads. This is not just some cute little Christian thing to do. This is a way to process. What is God saying to you? And I want to encourage every single one of you, as painful as it may be, to go before God on your own several times this week. Jesus, speak to me truthfully about my shame. Go where it hurts. Show me what I've been covering. Show me where I've been pretending, and write it down, and then pray it out, and then write it down and then pray it out. And write it down and then pray it out, and if you've got some friends that you trust, tell them that's part of our healing and part of our growth. Allow Jesus to speak the truth to you about your shame. And then number two, we need to give our shame to Him because it is, your, it is not yours to bear, it is His. See, Jesus needs to get your shame out of you and onto the cross. We're afraid our shame's gonna be out there for everyone to see and me to bear. And Jesus says, now that it's out, give it to me. We need to understand how Jesus, sorry, how Jesus deals with our shame. 2 Corinthians 5:21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God God created him who knew no sin to be sin where Jesus became your sin and Jesus became your shame Jesus became your pornography Jesus became your adultery. Jesus became your brokenness. Whatever shames you most deeply, Jesus became that. And if that freaks you out, it's meant to freak you out. It's not for you to carry, it's for Him. I remember Adam and Eve, their first response to their shame was to cover up and hide. We've spoken about how Jesus takes out the hiding He brings us into, into the light. But now what happens, we need to allow God to cover us. This verse says that he gives us his righteousness. He covers us with his identity, with his son, and with his righteousness. And that is the freedom in which we walk. That is what God is wanting to do in your life. And that is the living water that Jesus wanted for this woman. When God covered Adam and Eve in Genesis, I don't know if you know the story, but Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with these temporary fig leaves. And God covered them with skins. A foreshadowing of true forgiveness and a true covering is gonna cost somebody's blood. And this is a picture of the cross. It's gonna cost Jesus' blood in order to cover you and give you freedom. There's a story that um, C.S. Lewis tells in one of his books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it's in the the Chronicles of Narnia, and he tells a story about Eustace, and Eustace was this really rubbish little boy, um, a real painful kid and a painful character, and he came across this large fortune. And as he came across this large fortune in this story, he just started thinking in his mind about all the things and all the selfish and greedy things he wanted to do with this money. And then he fell asleep surrounded by all this money. And overnight he turned into a dragon, kind of an outward expression of this greed and the selfishness that he was living in. But he had put on a gold bangle on his arm. But now that he had become this enormous dragon, this gold bangle was so... So painful to him and there's nothing that he could do to rid himself of this bangle and become a boy again aslan and if you don't know this um, aslan is a depiction of god in c.s lewis's books uh, particularly of jesus christ so aslan the lion comes up to eustace now the dragon and he says eustace you must undress yourself of course he wasn't referring to clothes so Eustace, so desperate to rid himself of this pain, started ripping at his dragon skin, just trying to get this dragon skin off, deal with it himself. And what happened? Man, he got rid of a layer of dragon skin and what was underneath? Another layer of dragon skin. And he did it again, more dragon skin. And he did it a third time and then he realized, I can't rid myself of this dragon skin. So Aslan takes him takes him to the top of a mountain, there's a garden at the top of the mountain and he takes him to a well a well in the middle of this garden and Eustace the dragon knew if I could get into that water my pain would go away and then Azan says let me undress you, in other words let me deal with your past, let me deal with the sinful dragon like exterior and I just want to read how this went down The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what God is showing you. I think often we believe if there's this kind of path that we should be on and now I've strayed and, strayed and strayed and strayed and strayed and strayed. It's going to take me so long to get back there. I want to say to you, you are one decision away from encountering Jesus now. And Jesus intersects with your past and your shame wherever you are. But He doesn't want to just come to you. I know it's what you want. Just wave your magic wand, Jesus. Make it all go away. He wants to pierce you he wants to get in where it hurts bring it into the light gently and lovingly but powerfully in order that he can dress us and point us to his son where he bore our shame we're going to sing a song that's going to encourage us to gaze at God and church, don't just go through these words. It's a beautiful song. It's a song most of us know well. Use a song as, a, as words to describe your desire to see Him and to know Him, to see what He has done for you. And then afterwards, I want to pray for all of us to whom God is speaking.